0: Hello. Podcast.marks.movie.collection. Mail from Mark D, IT guy, dad, bad movie nerd. Receipt to listeners at this podcast. Data. From at d on twitter.com. To Mark D's nuts listeners at this podcast. Date, today I guess. I'm a computer not a fucking fortune teller. This was pre recorded. Subject, re 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 hackers sup team we're going to pick up where we left off on 1995's movie hackers you should definitely listen to part 1 if you haven't just yet there won't be any backtracking i did some actual programming and by that i mean searching for code on github that did more or less what i wanted then i changed it to work for me so i could use the windows 10 speech synthesis Because in WPF you can use a voice called Microsoft Mark. Yes, this is why I am torturing you with this computer voice. Because it has the same name as me. But don't worry, this email won't be long but I'm going to put something on your calendar for the next hour. We're going to jump right back in. I hope you enjoyed this half-assed simulation of SMTP. Warm regards. Mark. Carriage feed. Line return. Carriage feed. Line return. Quit.
1: All right, let's do it. So let's talk about the clothes, the threads, the gear, The Yeezys, as kids call it these days. There's a lot going on here, and I know I'm not going to uh, do it justice, really, simply due to my nature of not being super into this, but I'm uh, fashion, but I'm going to try because I'm just shocked and amazed at some of the pieces that the the ensembles that were put together for this movie. One thing I want to talk about right up top is wallet chains. In, in 95, I had a wallet chain. It was on a, a no-fear leather trifold wallet. It was amazing. But in schools, it was a weapon. And that was some bullshit. I got out of the habit, or should I say that habit was beat out of me by a bullshit public school system that literally cared more about what we were wearing than what we were learning in most cases. But I'm not mad about it. Why would you think that I'm mad? I'm not mad. But I miss wallet chains, or as I refer to them, simply because they were pre-provisioned for chains, chain wallets. And I'm too old and rotund, or in many cases not rotund enough. I mean, I definitely need to shed a good amount of weight, but I'm not a, a fat—I'm not a fat guy. Fat, right? I can't be fat guy funny or anything like that because I'm in this uncanny valley of BMI that literally nobody wants. I'm—I'm I'm dad fat, right? But I have a kid, so I guess I can prove that, you know, I had sex at least once. I know this doesn't really factor into this, but how could it not? I mean, look, looking at these wonderful and young people dressed so amazingly, you know, Dade with a sick motorcycle jacket and bondage pants is fucking lit. Motorcycle jackets were a bit of a thing in this movie. Roger Burton sourced a really cool motorcycle jacket for Angelina Jolie's character Kate, to kind of smooth over her feminine curves and introduce a bit more interest and, and androgyny to her look. She already had the short hair, so he cranked it up a notch. Dade, in the last scene, uh, also wears a-, a long coat that always struck me as looking a little bit unusual. When I finally saw the coat in sufficient light over on hackerscurator.com, where you can actually see a lot of the clothes featured in the movie, its cut om- is is flowing almost like a woman's dress. And that's another touch of androgyny there. Uh, You know, Kate was wearing a dress, and Dade says he was deemed the winner because his friends thought that that would be the only way to get a date, and I think maybe that's a way of of him and her kind of meeting in the middle, or, you know, perhaps kind of fulfilling the fantasies that they had been having about each other. I think that adding some context to this would be important, though, and in the 90s, androgyny was a bit of a thing in more hmm, famous circles? Like, where I grew up, I didn't see that much of it at all. But if you're, you're looking at some of the bands of the time, I remember Scott Weiland wearing makeup and a feather boa. Uh, James Iha's look was, was totally down the middle in a few of the, you know, Pumpkins music videos. It was maybe more of a creative arts thing, but it was, it was getting screen time, right? Grunge also had a look, uh, which, for the very young audience of today, because, you know, kids are really hype on podcasts and all the kids are listening— I would probably describe as Macklemore's thrift shop video, but with jean shorts and wallet chains instead of skinny pants. And I think a lot of that was just due to the timing, right? 20 years before the 90s was the 70s, and, and you know, oddly enough, walking you through this, I feel a little like Glenn Beck. You know, 9 minus 2 is 7. 7 deadly sins times 10 for the Ten Commandments is 70. Fucking idiot. Anyway. So this weird mishmash of old and new that Roger Burton was going for incorporated a lot of 70s pieces, notably uh, the motorcycle jackets, granny glasses, and styles cobbled together with some army, skater, or punk-type stuff. You know, Grunge Music had that look going on, and and HackersCurator.com, again, because this website is fucking boss, um, you know, on that website, Burton says as much. he says, and I quote, I found that by juxtaposing different items of sports clothing with half-familiar elements from fashions past, I could achieve a timeless style where the viewer had no real fixed concept when the film was set. End quote. It was funny, though, because, uh, you know, the hacker scene he scouted was, again, a quote, mostly geeky white men dressed in black. End quote. Which is quite a portrait of yours truly. But uh, he hung out in New York for a bit and found that the original hype beasts weren't necessarily... Shelling out 400 bucks for some bullshit t-shirts. You know, it was a different scene. I wasn't cool in the nineties though. I was very uncool and as much wallet chain as I had, it didn't do much. You know, this has held fast into my old age, but I do have a couple of friends who still dress nineties cool and they fucking amaze me. And this movie was peak nineties cool. The fucking, the JVC soccer Jersey always stands out to me in my memory. I know I'm I'm kind of bouncing around here, but there is there's so much going on, and I have l- such little framework to kind of categorize this stuff because it's it's memories, it's the movie, you know, the world and and, and research kind of all mixing up. And I'd say that yeah, I'd say that the fetish, fetishization happened in a bit of the fashion more so than just androgyny. There's there's a lot of bondage stuff going on. Dade had a had bondage pants at one point. He even has a a harness for his leg, which I guess is kind of like a dick holster in concept, if not an execution, or is it sup- supposed to like, is it a dude's garter belt? It looks like it was, was probably some mountaineering shit because it's bright red nylon. But if it were military colored, I would almost say that it could be part of their rigging, right? Since leg holsters can be a thing, you know, because it's closer to where your, your hand might be. And if, if you think back to tomb Raider and, and Laura Croft leg holsters, can be perceived as being sexy as hell. Right. Angelina notably go on to wear some leg holsters. But um, you know, his red shirt that he wears with that holster is also cut short, so you can kinda see his midriff a little bit. And um it's definitely a choice for someone with great abs. Also when rewatching the party scene they they 80yard a bunch of serial killers dialogue over him walking through the party to get to Nikon. And I never, not once, ever noticed this or questioned it. There are a few instances of ADR in the movie that I've picked up in the most recent watchings of the Blu-ray, like The Plague saying, let's echo 23, see what's up. You know, when he skates into the Gibson, but that's that's not important right now. It's just the thing I forgot to point out. Um, I was going back to check out Serial Killer's Lou Reed shirt, which is wild and glittery and sparkly. And Serial definitely has a bondage thing going on with the ripped shirts and the cutoff sleeves or, you know, one sleeve singular. And kind of this asymmetry and chaos where, where sometimes he's wearing a tank top that's look looks like it's meant to be for a tall and slender woman. You know, just so he can kind of casually easily pull his nipple out and it's a, it's a whole thing, right? He's also rocking the, the left ear cross earring, which is not my look because I do not dig the asymmetry of that at all. Seems maybe a little bit of a Pendulet thing. Um, I had earrings in both ears, um, just because I liked that symmetry. I had to get, I had to get rid of them, um, because they're just holes in our body waiting to get infected. And I'd rather not get my ear cut off or, or die because I have earrings, but it was cool while it lasted. I mean, it's, you know, my own health things, but I needed to do both. Like I couldn't do one, you know, I saw phantom freak had an earring or two in his left ear as well. And, and now I'm like, Hey, <laughs> can anyone have both ears in this movie? Is that a thing that we can do? And Phantom Freak is definitely a purveyor of animal print and more 70s-looking ensembles, wearing a lot of button-down That 70s Shirts. I mean, that's what I call them. But again, going back to the time, everybody's parents and the thrift shops were full of 70s pieces. And that's what was coming back. I used to shop at a store called Pacific Sunwear that had a bunch of bullshit like that and and bell-bottoms and what have you, along with the more, you know, surfer-skater stuff that I would wear. And you know, also how do, how the fuck does Dade's, Dade's mom know that Serial's name is Serial? Because they never introduce themselves anyway. Um, you know, looking at Kate, she's got a few rings in her right ear, but maybe just one in the location that is maybe the rook on her left. I can't really tell. Her left ear is not very visible, and I'm not I'm not going to keep looking this late in the game on some some minor ass detail, which you know I guess is my whole shtick. So I'm just undermining myself at this point. But I'll I will totally redeem myself. By mentioning that Razor has a Playboy Bunny earring at the end of the the movie. If not in one ear, in both. And I think it's in both. Nikon. Nikon has more sportswear, which is is cool and all. You know, the Plague has all these um, elaborate fur coats and things that apparently were custom made. And I believe that Roger Burton at some point calls the Plague Dickensian, which is a whole fucking vibe that is super communicated by his clothing. But back to the fetishization. There's also a lot of vinyl in the two sex dreams that Dade and Kate have, in that order. And in one of those, Dade is wearing the vinyl dress. And yeah, I mean, scrubbing through the ending, uh, I think Razor has been in both ears though. Razor is my savior. Razor is life. Beepers are the pop and wearable tech. Pagers, right, for the middle management crowd. Alphanumeric pagers for the pedantic middle management crowd um they were mostly motorola advisor pagers and uh i legit tried to buy one but they're like 50 bucks and you can't activate them i had an advisor too um or something very similar in my first it job and and that shit was cool as hell to me i'd I'd be out and and get a page like ticket blah 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 they're calling for you and i had all the tickets printed out and a big clipboard and it's a whole thing where i remember this fondly through rose-colored glasses but mm, yeah in the 90s I had an electric blue pager for a bit, not often to Merrick sadly. Um the way these characters wear their pagers though from personal experience is insane. They're they're just on bag straps or on your like shirt collar kind of thing and they're just waiting to get grabbed, begging, steal me. Anyway, you know, all these types of weird places well I mean they're not weird right because they totally work for the movie, but they are in impractical places but they are in frame like you see them some of these are neon they call attention to the pager the the impractical in a real world sense but very very practical in a movie sense and almost um stylistically and thematically very extremely guided so really cool but that's just a gateway right to the tech in the movie there's um there's a ton of cool computers in this shit and um i just thought of um the devil came up to Michigan, uh, which is a song by KMC Crew, which I just I enjoy because it's like a devil came down to Georgia, but it's like like rap and they're like DJs or hip hop, I should say, and they're DJs. The devil's a DJ, and um, you know, the, the dude is a DJ, the the butcher, right? In this case, and um, they describe the devil as having a beeper on his zipper, and I'm like on the zipper in his fucking pants or in his jacket, right? Because if you have a zipper and you're like hanging out of your pants, like Is your dick a zipper? Is a pager a surrogate for a penis? Is it essentially a cod piece, an alphanumeric?
0: Sup fam, Microsoft Mark, here with a word from our sponsors. I hope this advertisement finds you well. I'd like to sync up with you and level set on the email buzzword if you're. It really brings value to your business alignment strategy by showing immediate ROI but let's keep that in our back pocket for right now. I know you may not currently have the bandwidth because you're all hands on deck with boots on the ground but, to be crystal clear with the messaging, I'd like to circle back and close the loop so that we can really unpack this very unique product and how it can move the needle on your KPI in a turnkey ecosystem. We can table this for now, so ping me when it's on your radar and we'll touch base on how you can really deploy one-to-one paradigms across your org. Warm regards, Mark.
1: Ton of cool computers in this movie. And um, I've used a couple of web resources to figure it out, but, um, you know, again, hackerscurator.com has a stellar list of the devices in here. And and I'll start out with some considerations for the visual effects of the movie. And uh, David Chang, David Chang, talks a bit about how they did the graphics, and most of that was practical. Although there were, you know, according to him, potentially some green screen and screen replacements. But um, if there was, they filmed a the practical and, and put it on there. So, you know, the idea that you're looking at a computer screen holds up. Although, if 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 I recall correctly, viewing angles were hot garbage on Active Matrix displays back then. So someone went through a lot of trouble to make this look good, and I I definitely appreciate that. But let's take a trip down memory lane and talk about a company called Macromedia and a thing called Shockwave. And I'm not saying they use Shockwave. I don't think that Shockwave existed quite just yet. But like the guy from Ancient Aliens, it'll be the meme and it just says Shockwave, because Shockwave was the platform to Published the Macromedia Director content to the web. You know, my first computer, not the first one I've used, but or I used, but, you know, the first one that was mine, that I got, came with a game called The Journeyman Project, which was um, a point-and-click with some early 90s CG animation and was shockingly, right, I am now shocked, made in Macromedia Director. This was um, a multimedia experience. And you have to think back that uh, everything in the 90s was, was, was multimedia. Everything was multimedia in 95. You had multimedia Windows 95 with 16-bit sound and multimedia remote controls and multimedia keyboards and so on and so forth. So it's only fitting that, that this was multimedia animation program was used for all of these graphics. And I want to make a, a weird callback to a strange uh, computer feature. I don't know if everybody remembers this, but there were certain CD-ROMs that you could buy that actually had like a play button on the CD-ROM, on the outside of the actual device of the drive, and um, it had like a a next and a back button, and you could just straight play a CD right through there. Does anybody remember that? Because I do, and again, this is maybe part of the multimedia-ness of the 90s, but it seems insane. It seems wild. Um, Anyway, it, it it only works, right? Director. Makes sense. So um you know, in as movies go, there will be set of new setups or scripts or whatever. They slightly rewrite a scene. And you know, I talked a little bit about how in London they had more flexibility in the schedule and they were they were open to rewrites, whereas I think in New York they were pretty much locked in on the on the shoot schedule, you know, due to cost, right? David Chang recounts how they might need to start working on a change for one of those you know, the day of to be able to film it, you know, next day. And, and these animations would need to have timing and things set up so that the actors could use it as cues or or to know their timing so that they could cue the animation. Some of the animations were programmed to fire off on on button presses to help this out. And it, it was all cool as shit, right? And Wired Magazine has been talked about as as being an inspiration for the look of the movie by a few people, um, Ian Softley and Roger Burton, come to mind. And the graphics in some way look a little more childish. Um, no, that sounds offensive, but maybe juvenile? No, still offensive. Um, but you know what I mean, like like what the later 90s AOL progs would be. But they also had this element of, like, David Carson, who was the, the graphic designer for the magazine Ray Gun and created his own firm, David Carson Design, link in the show notes, and notably is the adventure of... What what is called grunge typography, or what is considered grunge typography, which again is 100 percent mood. And if you look at at mid 90s Nine Inch Nails stuff, you will probably see David Carson's hand in it. I do also like the Rob Sheridan era of Nine Inch Nails as well, right? But um, thinking back on it, right, like Fight Club posters remind me a lot of David Carson stuff. There was also Wired magazine, which was was super hot shit right then, and it was only about two years old, right? And uh, Plunkett plus Kerr, which are John Plunkett and Barbara Kerr styled with a plus, uh, were behind this wildly digital and stylish magazine. And in the link in the show notes, again, you can see some of the covers that they worked on. And it is apparent that some of that um, stylized chaos right, made it into the computer visuals of hackers. Hacker's computer visuals looked like what everyone dreamed the internet could look like in 95. It's obviously very different nowadays, but it did end up looking a little bit like that for a while when Shockwave and Flash were all the rage. And I can't help but wonder how much of that was was because of the influence that this movie had on people who had just started their tech jobs when the movie came out or who were artists that jumped into tech because of the aesthetic of the film. But because this was created on Director, they basically only used Apple Powerbooks that ran, you know, System 7. Serial Killers Laptop was a, a compact that had its guts replaced with a Powerbook. Dade had a, a compact portable, and I used that with the loosest sense, but also had Powerbook guts. And I would definitely one day love to make my own kind of more modern version of, of one of these systems. But my fabrication skills are quite poor. And my motivation to further prove myself as a failure in computer modification is not very high. Not a lot of that. Lord Nikon had a Toshiba Satellite T-1850 with the internals of, you guessed it, a PowerBook. And I had used a satellite for a while when I was a kid. Those was probably um, like a T-2155 or something like that, a little bit newer than this vintage. Um, I had also used, a, I want to say it was a, a Panasonic before that, which I should look up at some point. But I just got a Panasonic camera, so there's maybe a little bit of a symmetry there. Um, But I should look up. I should try to find the first laptop that I remember using. But it was very cool. Um, But um, the the Toshiba Satellite was like a T2155, and this is where I developed my love for the nipple, right? As people like to call the little kind of eraser mouse, the touchpoint kind of thing that lives in the middle of the keyboard. And I could ski free like a motherfucker with that thing, because it was like Windows 3.1, it had a mouse, you know? And as I'm looking at one on eBay right now, uh, desperate to have it, but, you know, I really foresee that being just kind of a pointless gesture that will only end in tragedy. So this is me growing up, in real time. Anyway, the Transparent PowerBook was actually a prototype built by Apple that David Chang still has, and, and that's fucking amazing. And I wanted to say that, I wanted a PowerBook really, really, really bad after watching Independence Day because it was, it was very obviously a PowerBook. It was product placement in that movie, and it wasn't beige. It was black. I don't know if you remember the, the black MacBooks, um, probably around 2006, 2007, maybe, kind of initial 10.5-ish era. Um, unfortunately, they would get hot and turn brown, but they were very cool. I am now... Owner of a couple of black laptops or have been in my time, and it's unfortunate that I just get them greasy and gross at all points in time. So whoops. So I do want a camo keyboard, and I think that one day I will buy a camo Filco 10 keyless. And as much as I love my Quickfire Rapid, my wife has a Philco 10 keyless, and holy shit, it is just better, despite the Quickfire Rapid allegedly being built in the same factory. And being better than most cheap macs by a large margin so yeah their computers um, except the clear one were really decked out and, and modified with a bunch of cool shit like stickers and and paint Ian softly compared it to punk musicians putting stickers on their guitars you know it's a thing where it needs to look like chaos but it's a it's an organized chaos with intent and, and balance behind it right you know I don't I don't have the artist's eye just yet. You know, I was was starting to get it when I was really, really dedicated to photography and I'd spend, you know, hours a day looking at photos and then shooting photos and and hating them, but nonetheless doing the thing. But now I just have way more shit to do. Um, And it doesn't pay bills, but uh, I don't really have that eye. So when I put stickers on things, it just looks like crap. I avoided it for a long time, but I have accumulated a significant amount of stickers, and I had a laptop that I really did not like, so I stickered that motherfucker up. So I am I guess I'm kind of a hacker now or whatever, right? Uh, but no, in all seriousness, the, the art direction for, for these devices was so cool, and I wish that I had one iota of that in my life, but I'm just fucking destined to be shitty at it, unless I work, like, super-duper hard or whatever, but, you know, here I am with a long-winded... Mediocre podcast, so I guess that's that. Yeah, I guess I just want to touch on, you know, maybe two more things in this this tech space, and that is Dade's fucking private eye monocle display that he uses for the run on the Gibson. There was like a, a shitty gaming system that had a, a monochrome display like that that I would see on TV, and I cannot for the fucking life of me find it on the internet right now. But Dade's thing was an actual real product called a a virtual vision sport. Again, hackers curator says that it was called a private eye in a draft of the script. And that there was a whole explanation that, that didn't make it into the movie. Uh, if it ever was shot, but it also seems pretty pointless, right? This is one of those things where we know that he's seeing the Gibson through, through that thing. And he's automatically fucking cooler than everybody else, right? Show don't tell. But, but it's a real thing, and it was it was kind of cool that they just took off the fucking weird wannabe, Oakley-ass-looking part of the glasses for the movie to make it you know a bit more open to the actor's face. And I also forgot to talk about how Joey's the basic one. He has the basic-ass desktop, but I mean, that's the long and the short of it, right? He loves that desktop, and I can get behind that, having been a Joey for most of my life. He keeps it real clean, though. Uh, Lucy, that's her name. But no, that's not what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about the Gibson. The Gibson is heavy fucking metal. It is a a mainframe of epic proportions that, you know, perhaps was still very much a thing at the time. And probably still is now, unfortunately, as legacy systems. If you've seen the the whole thing about Cobol programmers, this is bullshit legacy systems. That's where that comes from. Um... But the, the the rise of more distributed systems and the rapid increase in the power of more commodity hardware, right, as opposed to a custom-made mainframe architecture where everything was bespoke to that device, including you had to hire an entire squad of people to, or service contract to maintain it, another squad of people, or, again, service contract or consultants to program it. You know, but fuck all that because right now we have 64 core, 128 thread processor, single socket that someone with a credit card right now could just go out and order and not go out and buy because where the fuck is there even a computer store nowadays? Um, But with a bare bones from Supermicro, you've already got more compute than you know what to do with right away, instantly, like minimal effort. It is falling off a log. So that wasn't even remotely the case in the 90s. So the Gibson was a symbol of the establishment in a lot of ways. Companies like the fictional Ellingson Mineral were the only ones that could afford uh, the Gibson. And when you say the Gibson, you know, that means there's really only the one in that huge company. The huge storage array is a literal array of glass towers that were, or you know, two-dimensional array of glass towers. You know, Fuck. I had to correct myself on that one. It is immaterial, but they were hand-animated, you know, towers that were hand-animated using a motion-controlled camera and frame-by-frame switching cells on the tower, right? Like, it's amazing. This is probably the only way to make a mainframe exciting to Joe and Jane Random in a major motion picture. You know, Emmanuel Goldstein, again in Keyboard Cowboys, poses the question, how do you make text exciting in reference to the liberties taken by the movie and the answer to that question is quite simply that you don't you know even mr robot a show lauded for its realism doesn't make text exciting you know yeah sure you see kali linux boot up or or you watch you know john the ripper do its thing or whatever but it's always with a voiceover and with you know pretense that is the actual suspense What's on the screen doesn't strictly matter. Oh, you know, Elliot's going to Shodan to search for Tomcat vulnerabilities. Big shit. That means nothing to so many people. But we know that there's something else going on while he's doing that. And that it's either communicated by voiceover. Cuts, you know, intercut with whatever it is that's happening. Also and or some combination of things that were previously set up. Right? The, the, the computer part of that the hacking part of that the specifically that operation is not the drama of the show per se right in hackers this is in a way the focus is and through the hacking sequences we have the drama and the action it can't really stand up to being even that much true to life cuz it will be very boring and as a professional script writer and script watcher or you know if i'm feeling frisky progress bar watcher it can be excessively boring, you know, but if the plague is is Dickensian, then the Gibson seems positively Heinleinian, right? Like Robert Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, right? Except it doesn't gain sentience. But this is this type of all controlling system and the, the conceit of the Da Vinci virus is that it's it's in the Gibson and it will capsize tankers because the Gibson controls the, the ballast of all these tankers, which is which is not an ideal architecture for obvious reasons but that computer the the Holmes 4 affectionately named Mike by the narrator of the book runs just about everything on the lunar colony and it's it's a very cool book and i think not completely unknown to the filmmakers probably most specifically the writer rafael moro because it's a very good book that touches on a lot of what this movie touches on in ways and maybe lines up a little better with the early draft or even possibly in the cut that still had "free our data" right as a mantra. And you should check it out. But uh, the Gibson is an entire set, right? It's a huge room with a massive video wall and a keyboard that I believe is just elevator button panels set horizontally instead of vertically. It's literally the worst fucking keyboard that someone could think of, but it looks. Fucking amazing, and it makes this super fa- satisfying thump when a key is pressed that really impresses upon you the power of the system, pun intended. Right? Thump, thump. God wouldn't be up this late. Thump, 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 thump. You know, but also, what the fuck is up with this Da Vinci virus? It's like a dude with hair, and it has emotions and is ostensibly alive when they're they're taking down the Gibson and the virus was like, No like goddamn fucking Darth Vader. Or did I make that up in my head, right? I'm gonna scroll but I'm gonna scrub through and watch that shit. And the and the track here, Grand Central, was was written for this movie and has some heavy hitting uncredited musicians that did it as a favor. Holy shit. So I went back to make sure I didn't make that up and it's it's actually worse. Right? The the Da Vinci virus goes Help me. Like, how the actual fuck did no one call that shit out? Like, that was a bad one. That is one of my very few criticisms, but it was, you know, probably an insert after a screening where people were like confused or, you know, it was a studio note. I don't know what United Artists was like back in the day, but, you know, studio is going to give notes. Know what I mean? But yeah, the end of this movie isn't isn't quite as solid as I remembered. Um, I just, I don't, I don't see it as much. in and, and casual watching, and, and this is maybe something culturally independent. I can start a movie, but then something comes up and I'm like, God, I gotta fucking stop the movie. I've seen the beginning and the middle of Hackers probably 10 times more than I've seen the end. You know, even though the end is the the high action, um, just because of how that phenomenon works, where you get interrupted and something else comes up and you stop your movie for some reason, like the ending just now. And this these these past few watchings is like, oh, this, yeah. I mean, things happen and it's really cool, and and they they take down the Gibson with the help of everybody. But you know, the the sequence when once they get into Grand Central is dope, but the the logic falls apart in service of how awesome you know the situation would be you know like if you've ever met law enforcement you'd know that no one would go free off of a fucking tv hack no matter how fucking awesome it might be you know and, and awesome it is very much so rightly so you know tv intrusion isn't a thing that's really been done more than a couple of times and you can definitely read about the max headroom thing but um Law enforcement is a is a whole different animal. And, and you can also actually read the Bruce Sterling book, The Hacker Crackdown, for free on Gutenberg.org, right? He totally released that shit free as fuck. And was like, hey, read it for fun, but if you're going to do it for any you know, real reason, or if you're feeling cool, please buy it. Paraphrasing. I bought that book years ago, having zero fucking idea it would have been free on Gutenberg.org, but I don't regret it. Um, I, I actually bought it at the same time that I bought the the Cyberpunk uh computer outlaws on the digital frontier or whatever the fuck and um yeah it's pretty enlightening and gives you a really good background coming into this movie because the book ends and came out right around the time where the movie is coming out right um but like you know the ending has its its issues but then you know in the pool right when you know dade does the the crash and burn kind of like uh, building lights thing. That's cool as shit. And, um, that probably is what inspired project blinking lights where they do. They do exactly this and they even have interactive versions in some cases. Right. And it, it's, it's a mood, uh, blinking lights website seems a bit broken, but they have a link to their Twitter where, where you can see some of their stuff. But, um, but ultimately the movie is a fantasy and a very fun one. And it, a world that I would be very okay living in how 95 seems like a utopia compared to 2020. Right. Um, but if you wanted to type like a hacker for any re- real, re- for any real reason, PSA, right. You want to type like a hacker, you can go to hacker io, and it will give you a webpage that you can put into some fucking full screen mode and it will type out some, some C plus plus, I'm pretty sure it's C plus plus, you know, when you just hit a key, to kind of clue you into the, the phenomenon of, of working with these visual effects, you know. And I also have some Ruby scripts for for macOS that, if I find them, I'll post links for. But um, they're kind of the same thing. And it, it makes it look like some cool shit is happening on your screen. Um, oh, well, maybe I'll find my Hackerspeak script and put some of that in this episode. I don't know yet. We shall see. Um, it won't be Microsoft Mark, though. That part I actually have recorded already
0: shut up let's talk about the music
1: yeah i think they actually released three records that were compilations based on the music in the movie of hackers and or two that were compilations and one that was a subset of the movie a subset of the music in the movie hackers and maybe that clues us, you know, right, the future audience looking back into the mindset of United Artists and how, how little idea they had to market this movie, that they didn't release the fucking soundtrack before the movie was out. No airplay for songs on this soundtrack and no magazines reviewing it and calling it a straight fucking banger. It was released something like nine months after the movie came out and subsequently... The album ended up selling well enough to follow it up with two more albums that weren't they weren't even in the picture, but were inspired by it. If memory serves, right? Um, But this did absolutely nothing for the box office numbers. And I'm not super on top of my electronic music history, but you know, obviously, we'd had synths and and post punk and dance music and Thomas Dolby for some time, right? But I think that you know, very unscientifically, Thomas Dolby. kind of anecdotally, colloquially is, is maybe credited for the sequencer. I'm not 100% on that, but I heard an interview and it seemed like a, a big deal. Anyway, you know, the art form started to evolve because the technology was getting better and easier to access around this time. You know, the ubiquity of computers was only pushing the art form forward. You know, and I think you can even extrapolate that to now, right? You can extrapolate that and I think that you can even extrapolate that to now, where most film scores, or, you know, unless it's a massive film, are scored by the composer using a computer. And if it's orchestral, a lot of times the average listener won't even be able to tell. Um, you know, but additionally, we have these these minimalist, uh, desolate soundscapes that, while not, not impossible in the analog world, right, benefit greatly from computers. You know, I'm thinking a lot of the the soundtrack for The Social Network, which, you know, a huge number of people call their their work music or focus music, myself included, but also the soundtrack for It Follows by Disasterpiece. And I like Disasterpiece so much that I'm going to drop a link in the podcast that he was on in the show notes so you can check that out. Honestly, um, Reznor and Ross probably have enough stuff that they could have done The Social Network almost completely analog, but, you know... It's that type of sound that is now almost the rebound, right? The the backlash from the '90s and early 2000s or early aughts electronic music, like you know the Prodigy and Left Field, which were so rich or you know just generic vocal trance, right? And I'm happy to see Brooklyn bounce on the third album, but also um, there's a distinct lack <laughs> there's a distinct lack of drum and bass, which was pretty huge in my geeky circles but that might have been a little too niche for these albums which already had like a brand right um but i do love me some the prodigy though and fat of the land was actually set to be my next music podcast um the next episode of my music podcast cleverly called mark's music collection i think you'll you'll notice a pattern there right but i took a hiatus on that to make Mark's movie collection and I found myself feeling a lot less inadequate about that because you know my music theory is thin at best but you know thinking about characters and story is is something that one's I guess primary education at least began to poke at so I've, I've built on it from there right and I, I, I did however do uh, an episode on massive attacks mezzanine on my podcast and You know, there's a link down there, and I'm happy to see that Protection, right, the song Protection, not from that album, made it onto the anniversary release, which um, should be shipping from Amazon in June. Um, The anniversary release also has David Gilmour legit on the credits for Grand Central, and in Keyboard Cowboys, Guy Pratt was like, oh, one of my famous friends. And the story turns out that Guy Pratt had been the touring bassist for Pink Floyd for some time, and... David Gilmour is clearly better than Roger Waters. Don't at me. Urban Dance Squads. Good Grief was also a bit of an eye opener for me. I always thought that that was a, a Rage Against the Machine song, and that they had a movie band up on the screen, but no, that that's Urban Dance Squad, and Good Grief is a fucking banger. They're Dutch though, so I guess that's why they weren't you know terribly popular in the states. And I'll I'll go back to I'll touch briefly back on fashion uh, most of the people working on the movie were in pre-production and stuff like that were from europe so they also maybe brought that sensibility with them which is very novel for an american audience uh, i'll just say that and move on from there um but i will take a second to go through some of these tracks here that i actually haven't gone through uh and it will take just a second to go through some of these tracks here and call out like some notable ones, but I actually haven't gone through and listened to all of these very recently at all. So bear with me. Okay. I'm still recording. Cool. All right. So Cruder and Dorfmeister, uh, original bedroom rockers is a fucking hot song. It's literally like, fuck the song. Uh, cowgirl by underworld is kind of a banger and i think it's like a new york feeling song obviously voodoo people tremendous um that was the rollerblade scene i believe towards the end of the movie when they're hitting the red lights on all the the cop cars uh open up by left field left field also had a song called africa shocks which i like loved um not african but it was cool um Phoebus Apollo, Carl Cox. Carl Cox, wildly famous uh, English DJ, I believe. Uh, The Joker by Josh Abrams. Uh, He had a a really popular song. I don't remember if it was fucking called Children or... It was another dude. Um, Also, obviously, Halcyon, On and On. Uh, Opening song, Communicate by Plastico. Mm. Uh, One Love, again. Or maybe One Love was the... Yeah, One Love was the the police car kind of action thing. Voodoo People was somewhere else. I don't remember where right now. Um, uh, Connected by Stereo MCs. That was a fun one. Uh, I thought that that was kind of... That one actually got some airplay. Um, if I recall correctly. I, I remember knowing that song outside of the movie. Um, Good Grief. Uh, you know. Heaven Knows by Squeeze, the cheesy love song at the end. Right? Uh So then the re-release has um, something like six more tracks, right? Uh, It has a whole second disc with Protection by Massive Attack. Uh, A couple of Guy Pratt songs, including Grand Central, which is awesome. Uh, A Hacker Suite performed by Simon Boswell, uh, who did the score, right? So then there's a bunch of other things, but Simon Boswell did some of the original score type stuff. But then Hackers two, right? So Hackers one, right, or Hackers the soundtrack, came out in nineteen ninety six. Uh, Hackers two, right, inspired by, came out in ninety seven. So a year later or some months later, so you get a, a really bad mix of Firestarter. Um. Remember by BT uh, feels like a very normal kind of trancey song. That's kind of what I considered trance in the. You know, 2000, 2001 kind of thing. Uh, another Underworld song, Cherry Pie. Cool. Another Left Field song, Inspection. You know, uh, Orbital Speed Freak, Moby Remix. That's cool. Uh, and another Left Field song. And, and a Chicane song. And Get Ready to Bounce, actually, was on, on Hackers 2. Um, oh, right. So Hackers 3 had um, another BT song. Uh, another Carl Cox song called Future 2000. Uh, another chicane song, Strong in Love, and then it had Hack the Planet by Brooklyn Bounce, which I am going to listen pretty soon, and then it had two Simon Boswell songs, Diskettes and Launch Da Vinci, which, do they make it onto the re-release? They do not. Oh, yeah, Disquette does. Uh, Launch the Virus does not. Launch Da Vinci does not. So, I brief, briefly touched on this earlier. But the movie was written by Rafael Moreau, who is somewhat mysterious. The most robust source of information about him on the internet right now, as far as I can tell, is his IMDb page. And that's uh, interesting to me because that's usually not the case. Um, like me, he's, he's from Miami, but he went to Tisch School of the Arts in New York and is, after a lot of success, um, you know, he had a lot of success directing plays, he ends up as a story analyst for several studios and production companies kind of doing them all at once and the job title story analyst that didn't really ring any bells but it seemed to be another name or maybe another tier of a script script reader script reader it is early in the morning and for those who may not know what a script reader is someone who it's it's someone who goes through the mountains of submitted screenplays for for studios and producers who are attempting to evaluate them to to make a decision on whether or not they would want to proceed with making the movie. This job requires reading a huge number of scripts, but also summarizing and evaluating on some metrics to then decide if it should be passed up the chain for further consideration or put into a drawer, or if not, you know, completely binned. I can imagine this stage of his career being particularly brutal and you know, reading Oh, so many fucking scripts a week. Um, But this is formative in a lot of ways. As an artist, one of the best things that you can do is observe other art. Not to imitate or rip off, but more to refine your own ideas and thoughts. It's like uh, training a machine learning model, but you're the algorithm and the model is what you like. And the output is your art, right? When I was, you know, photographing more seriously, I was on a a popular art site, and I would legitimately look at 4,000 pictures a day, at least, probably more. I subscribed to many feeds, a lot of street and a lot of architecture photography, because that's what I enjoyed to look at. And it helped me better select and definitely better edit my shots aligned to what I was doing, which, you know, wasn't really street or architecture, but more what I would call the timidity of a person who, (laughs) although dedicating hours every day, was still timid, and scared, and and insecure to the point of being ineffectual, and that resulted in a whole cycle of negativity, but, you know, neither here nor there, but, like, my whole thing was, like, I'd get close to, like, fucking machinery and take pictures of it, you know, with shallow depth of field, and then, you know, use weird film, vintage gear, and unusual development and printing processes to to substitute for talent, Uh, (laughs) but anyway... You know, back onto the summary, and you should definitely read the IMDb page. It's it's interesting, but Rafael goes on to be director of development for RHI Hallmark and helps make several miniseries, a bunch of TV movies, and several feature films. In there, he has started research for hackers, and this is the part that fascinates me. How did this happen? How did a drama kid from Miami find his way into a 2600 meeting in New York City? Like, I'd love to hear the story. The short, boring version is that he ended up hooking up with fiber optic to to get into the scene. You know, again, in, in Bruce Sterling's book, you get to see some of what fiber optic was up to at the time. And there's a notable timetable entry in the book that is dated January 24, 1990. Which says, "USSS, right, U.S. Secret Service and New York State Police raid fiber optic Acid Freak and Scorpion in New York City. And that kind of phrase taken with out of context, you know, it sounds amazing. They sound like fucking superheroes. Fiber and Acid are described as a pair of young New York hacker freaks whose skills at telco switching station intrusion were matched only by their apparent limitless hunger for fame. Limitless. I should hit that a little harder. I should should definitely enunciate. Um, and and this could have been a modicum of inspiration for Razor and Blade, whom Dade Murphy at one point calls flakes. You know, my actual thought process here is that it's not that isn't necessarily the case, but more that there was a lot of strong inspiration from a variety of characters. You know, and they all made their contributions. You know, mixed and matched into woven into these threads that that make up the rich tapestry of the movie i'm not going to call acid and and fiber directly razor and blade but maybe that aspect did inspire that but maybe their togetherness also inspired serial and nikon right cuz they're kind of my buddy my buddy duo right the the you know the main kind of duo right but that's that's magical that's the the the, the reality of life and maybe that magic is what pulled Rafael in. Maybe he was on the internet and he came across some of these amazing things that that tended to be on there at the time, or or maybe there was a friend or a friend of a friend. You know, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to know, right? And in my head, there's a whole three days of the Condor scenario playing out in the Hallmark headquarters. But, you know, that's that's purely my wish fulfillment at work. Um, and like I said in the previous episode, which you definitely listen to, a wink. Um, the early draft that's floating around was um, a lot more raw than the PG-13 movie. Extrapolating from the excerpt that I saw, it was more like uh, Harmony Kareem's Kids than a multi-quadrant now-punk adventure, right? And that's stealing another word from Bruce Sterling. You know, now-punk is, is more the sci-fi that is set now, right? As, as things are happening versus hundred years, a thousand years from now, or or whatever. And hackers is very, very much this. It isn't it isn't American graffiti because it isn't a nostalgic documentarian look back in at an at an idyllic period of life prior to massive change, right, on the cusp of of being upended. But instead it's a look into into the now where the change is currently happening, but adding some embellishments for entertainment purposes. You know, it's definitely a real thing. It's not quite prophetic, it isn't Cryptonomicon, but it is introspective and really quite compelling, you know, to me at least and to many others as the home video market has proven, you know, as a movie. But uh Rafael Moreau went on to write uh The Rage Carry 2, you know, which they kind of invert the franchise and tagline in the title and I super dug that. Uh, I loved it a lot. Uh, I never saw the movie, though. But on IMDb, he's listed as a story editor for The Lone Gunman, and as well as potentially worked on X-Files. So, you know, he's not credited for X-Files. Maybe he was just on staff or whatever, and that's fucking cool. I think Ian Softley was naturally attracted to this type of story. He had come off of making uh, Backbeat, which was awarded some recognition, but had a small release, and while... My summary of it is Laura Palmer tries to break up the Beatles by stealing Stephen Dorff. Um, but, I mean, that's just me messing around. I, I haven't actually seen it, but it is, by all accounts, an interesting look at the early period of the Beatles while Stuart Sutcliffe was uh, in the band in Hamburg, right? the Hamburg era of their career. This isn't the sexy part of the Beatles. There, there is no Beatlemania yet. They still have Pete Best. But uh, this ultimately, this right, this is the grand pivot of the future of the music industry in terms of being kind of pre and post Beatles. And Ian has this this attention to to the spirit of the thing. To say authenticity would be a little disingenuous because it's not. It's not the authenticity that that he seeks to replicate in a in a pedantic fashion, but more how he can capture the soul of the thing and and illustrate it to the audience. In Backbeat, they only had covers, right, that the Beatles played since this was prior to their songwriting breakouts. but but he recreated the music with kind of like punk and grudge musicians for the soundtrack, right? Like people uh, Thurston Moore. Dave Grohl and Henry Rollins were in the soundtrack version of the band, you know? And at the times these were were massive musicians that the world was familiar with, so it, it captured the idea that the Beatles were were coming up on this hot shit, super cool new thing that was going to be everywhere. Kind of like punk and grunge and, and and those things were at the time. Hackers feels a bit like that too. There's a whole world of fashion and rollerblading and just being fucking sick and doing TV intrusion and having the coolest fucking hangout in the world, and that wasn't the reality of the thing, but it was the soul of it, right? Uh, Cyberdelia in reality probably would have been a BBS, right? Because the exchange of of discussion and information was was primarily online. You know, yeah, sure, twenty six hundred. 2600. Yeah, sure. 2600 did have meetings, but it was stated that they were, you know, not anywhere near as glamorous, right? Dudes in black, um, pre the internet as we know it, right? BBSs were the only real way to truly exchange information and data, but having characters up at 3am trying to dial into a BBS and getting a busy, busy signal, that would have been extremely boring. And I don't think that we're so past this internet and technology thing that we can have an ironic retrospective where a crucial character in the future history of our world is in their youth and and in real time trying to dial into a BBS while thinking about the enormous social concerns that they'll end up changing in the future, right? You know, did Jack Dorsey ever try to dial into a BBS or, you know, we'll have him just young Jack Dorsey up all night trying to get onto fucking AOL. Is he even old enough for that? I mean, I'd put money on that movie in 20 years. I think Ian did take a strong approach to unifying the script to the movie he saw in his head. I think Ian did take a strong approach to unifying the script to the movie he saw in his head and made it work. This is an amazing and, you know, sometimes fantastical world, the world of hackers, right? But it's not. So often adventures, so much as it is patience and analysis with much grander arcs, much you know, a lot like real life. What happened here is that it got it got pumped up, right? Beautiful people with wild looks, banging soundtrack, and no waiting. Get it all in 105 minutes. It wasn't perfect, and there were some things that maybe didn't quite line up towards the end. But for the most part, the big setups were were paid off. You know that I recall. And nothing important developed out of thin air. The director isn't the editor. But sometimes the movie comes out in the edit. And and this was somewhat of a rocket of a movie. That could have easily captured. And keep youthful attention spans. So. The fact that it was so propelled. Makes me think that the edit was strong. And probably made it a better movie. And the fact that these hype beasts people are doing forbidden things on computers only propels that further you know i mean i know i have my bias i know i'm looking at it through rose-colored granny glasses but there's just so much about it that i love and it just hit me right now when i said uh rose-colored granny glasses right granny glasses a little bit of a tongue twister i'm pretty sure that serial killer when he's uh selling his um all great artists that asphyxiated on their own vomit fucking mixtape. He's wearing rose colored glasses. I'm not a hundred percent on that, but I believe they are tinted and they may be tinted pink. And that is amusing to me in a way that maybe had not occurred to me until just now. I'm I'm recording this though. I've closed all all movie things. I'm I'm not going back to look. Just check if you if you don't believe me. Tell me I'm wrong at cool. Mark D at me on that one. Um, there's a love story though, in this movie, a paranoia thriller, a buddy comedy, you know, a club scene and, 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 you know, fashion doc music. It's a big ass thing wrapped up really, really tightly and compressed just so right to make something really fun and very cool. And I would have said, you know, really fun and zero cool. And I, I think that would have been super fucking sick. But then there would have been um, a negative denotation, and it, it would have been confusing. You know, I think it's better now, actually, that I didn't say it, but then I'm then explaining the joke, right? This is definitely better. This is definitely working. I can feel it. Right, but also, you know, there's there's a validation here. There's a closure, and the validation is that I'm not the only one. I have friends who also love this movie and have always loved it. I've bonded with random strangers over this movie. There are websites out there, like Hacker's Curator, and thank you for that re by the way, that are um, a nexus of devoted fandom. Roger Burton uh, still to this day gets emails about the fashion in this movie. The home video numbers are an objective measure of the movie, and it has done gangbusters. The fact that the 20th anniversary release is getting a re-release after hitting Amazon Prime, is somewhat of an indication that this movie did numbers streaming. And while some critics did enjoy the movie, others panned it, but perhaps the biggest problem was that most people didn't get it. That isn't a crime, and, and I think that that's com- kind of come out in the wash at this point. When Squares and Normies you know, started getting on MySpace and Facebook to find romantic interests, you know, the nut that was the internet was officially cracked. People being horny changes everything. That's probably why America has so many fucking cars. Not because the suburbs. No, just people trying to fuck, and their parents don't let them. But yeah, I've gone on. I've officially gone on too long. Um, I didn't really get into the cyberpunk influences, which are there, right? And could have perhaps been stronger in the early stages of the screenplay, but they're in, and reigned back, but they're really... Cyberpunk is a bit of a fucking bummer, right? This movie isn't that. In this movie, right, justice prevails. The hackers, right, except for maybe freaking Joey. They're not in jail, and the plague gets locked up, right? Cyberpunk, a lot of which has taken inspiration from hard-boiled detective fiction uh, and film noir, usually has, like, less clear-cut and satisfying ending. And I think that's somewhat the nature of that beast, right? Think back to Neuromancer and Count Zero, or maybe more recently, Altered Carbon, right, the book. Um... I actually wasn't that into the show. I saw they got a a Paul F. Tompkins looking dude to be Poe who was just, you know, a computerized hotel in the book. And while like a thousand percent, I get that, um, you know, talking walls wouldn't be all that great for the screen, but it set a different tone that I wasn't, I wasn't ready for at the time. Right. But I'd also picked up the sequel, Broken Angels, and I did not really dig that at jump. So I was in in a bad headspace with regards to this like property. But it's definitely worth checking out. There's a lot of cool future shit in it, right? So this movie, zero future shit. And I dig it, you know? The biggest stretch was, like, um, what things looked like. And I think that that's part of why this holds up, right? You know, the dead-ass macromedia UIs were just fucking cool for the time. And they they spiced it up and they made it more obvious, right? The Gibson is a thing, like William Gibson, but it's embellished for visual understanding of Scope and effect. You know, it's a whole thing. The the virus saying, Help me, yeah, I don't I don't fucking know, man. That had to have been a note, right? Or maybe a gag that, that didn't quite land with me. I don't know. You know, who who played the Da Vinci virus? Now I need to know. And I know that it was a riff on the Michelangelo Michelangelo virus, which was one of the first ones to make the news and shit, but having a, a weird chameleon Vitruvian man with six different voices was that wasn't a thing. You know, there's legitimately a subculture uh, around for looking at old viruses, you know, viri, and uh, and detonating them to see what they would do, etc. In my mind, that's a cousin to the demo scene, but not anywhere near as cool, or, or you know, maybe as cool, just not as flashy. But yeah, uh, I'm, I'm going to take that back. That seems like I'm dissing the the old school virus scene. Like, no, man, Any anybody who kind of pursues that with that amount of passion, that is automatically cool. It's just less flashy, right? You can show a fucking demo to any asshole and they'll be like, wow. And they won't even begin to understand how fucking complicated that was to make. But you know, it's all cool, right? The actor's name was Enzo junior. First name Enzo last name junior. And there that's settled, but I'm going to leave it here. That's it. It's been two episodes. And that is, that is not nothing. But let's do the housekeeping. I got some feedback on the sponsor message from the last episode. And I can say that that UFO story is 100% true. And a lot of people have said that I was probably looking at my penis. I mean, Venus, Venus, the planet. It's visible in the northern sky, northwest, usually. Venus, um, around the semi year. I'm not 100% on that, but it's, it's it looks like a bright ass star. Android phones, uh, you can get Google Skyview View and, and, and use that and, and find Venus. Uh, there's an iOS app as well, but I don't recall its name. But um, same idea. I had a tweet. I made a tweet in which I tagged five perfect movies, but I actually added six, and I was um, I was extremely mistaken by in the six. Right, I was already over by one, not including Galaxy Quest. So that makes it seven. And, Galaxy Quest is is quite perfect, and if you haven't seen it, there is a fandom documentary now available to watch on Prime Video called Never Surrender, a Galaxy Quest Documentary. And it's great, you know, it always makes you think of, of Corey, Corey Hart, right? And never surrender! But, um, it's a legitimately good documentary, and it will make you feel good. It came out last year with a very, I think, limited theatrical release. That I miss, you know, because I'm the parent of a young child, and it's kind of your life for a few years. Don't get out to the movies too much and the like. Um, you know, normal. But uh, it was a Fathom Events thing, so it was legit like the one day. But those events are pretty cool, and uh, I've been to see a few Rift tracks, and I think even the showing of Raiders of the Lost Ark that I saw in 35mm was a, a Fathom thing. But, you know, they do bring special movies and events to a wider audience, and it's really fun. Uh, so I was happy that i got to see never surrender on prime and i'll drop a link to the trailer in the show notes and uh root slash period workspace slash period garbage period is definitely a real folder on a real computer somewhere and here i'll do like uh number three the music like red letter i'll
0: just do fucking microsoft mark